0: To bring sight to the blind man and sound to the left child. We will survive in this gotchy wilderness. Swimming through the waters above and lying like a rebel fish. Jobin's specialist, predator and survivalist, spinning heaven, fight it, it, stay, drive up on his lips. Bird slave driver.
1: Listeners, the time for an awakening on Black Talk Radio Network, new media for the new millennia. This is a history and current events program from a cultural perspective. We find this program necessary because Hosea 4:6 states, "My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge." But we as a people will turn this around. Proverbs 4 7 states, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. Though I get and get an understanding. Again, welcome to the program this evening with your host, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard. The number to reach us to get involved in the conversation this evening is 215 490 9832. That's 215 490 9832. We're streaming live audio at several locations you can go to timeforanawakening.com which is the home page and catch the live stream at that location you can go to www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening again that's www.blacktalkradionetwork.com forward slash time for an awakening and the live stream will be playing there also. We're at abibitumi.com. That's A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I.com forward slash time for an awakening. They stream from Ghana. Or you can download the TuneIn radio app to any of your devices. TuneIn is a free radio app. And that tune in that TuneIn search engine, just type in time for an awakening. There you'll see the icon, and you can stream the program live, even into your car if you had the Bluetooth capabilities or the auxiliary connection. Again, that's time for an awakening radio program with the live stream on the TuneIn app. Drop us an email at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Again, that's timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Time for an Awakening also has a fan page on Facebook. In the Facebook search engine, you can type in Time for an Awakening Radio Program. There you'll always see interesting content being posted daily by myself or Brother Richard. And do me a favor, before you leave that page, just hit that like button. That's Time for an Awakening Radio Program. With the fan page on Facebook, and time for An Awakening Media is also there, always full of the latest podcasts of the various programs. On time for An Awakening Media, interesting articles that you can read, download at later times, and share with your friends. Also, check out that time for An Awakening Marketplace in our partnership with the BB me Always interesting things in the marketplace all the time. Uh, various African language classes, classes on education, economics, social systems, health and much, much more being taught by professors on both the continent and in the diaspora. So, again, make that one of your favorites. Put that in your address bar. That's timeforanawakening.com. timeforanawakening.com will take you straight to Time for an Awakening media. It's 7.07 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. This Sunday, August the 27th edition of Time for an Awakening, our guest this evening in conversation, author, and Professor of Journalism at Temple University here in Philadelphia. Professor Lynn Washington is with us this evening. We'll be discussing a myriad of topics here this evening. It will be a very interesting discussion with our friend and award winning investigative journalist, Professor Lynn Washington. We'll be right back to get the program started after a brief word from our sponsors.
2: Mr. Moderator our distinguished guests, brothers and sisters, our friends, and and our enemies. (laughs) Everybody is here.
1: with your host, Brother Elliot, Sundays, 7 p.m., Fridays at 8 p.m., for podcasting or live program scheduling. Hit us up at timeforanawakening at gmail.com. Welcome back to Time for an Awakening at seven twelve. 12 here on this Sunday edition of Time for an Awakening. Before we get started with our program this evening, I want to welcome in my co-host, Philadelphia activist and tour guide at the African American Museum here in Philadelphia at 17th and Street, Brother Richard is with us.
4: Brother Richard. Yes, sir, Brother Ellie. How are <clears> you <throat> sir? Uh oh, I'm doing all right, you know, as we uh get go get past the weekend. But I'm definitely looking forward to um speaking with Brother Lynn Washington, you know, um and and, and getting a better handle on um there's so many things going on uh around us and you know the whole thing of how it's reported, um who is reported to and how should we re- review the reports that we get as it, as it relates to um, whether in journalism or news or, you know, broadcasting? Uh, I'm hoping you can help me uh, navigate these ideals and get some perspective.
1: Yeah, Richard, it'll be an interesting conversation with Professor uh, Washington this evening. Um, I had some things lined up. I know you did also, but th- I would be remiss not to address uh, what, happened in Jacksonville. Uh again, Richard, you see uh, uh similar to Buffalo and in uh, uh, Charleston. Uh the the uh breakfast place, I think it was in uh, Tennessee somewhere where black folks was eating breakfast. Guy walks in there, he walks into a dollar store in Jacksonville and unloads on black people. Uh let white folks out of the establishment and just unloaded on and killed three uh mm-hmm. and and uh according to published reports took his own life. So uh you know, I I don't know how they're gonna characterize this. You know, the last time when it happened in Buffalo, they characterized the guy as a lone wolf. uh, the the uh uh Democratic administration, Biden and others when they addressed this, they said the guy was a lone wolf, even though he lived at home with his parents. Uh he was online with several other um uh crazies Including, uh, retired, uh, federal agents. Uh, nobody was ever else arrested. Nobody ever charged, uh, beside him. So we'll see whether this guy's a lone wolf also. He's another one that lived at home with his parents, brought all these weapons, had a manifesto. And, and, but we got, uh, leaders, black leaders in, in several cities that's running around. Talking about public safety when we realized that since we've been in this country from sixteen nineteen to the present, black people have never been safe, whether it's from the drugs and guns that proliferate our communities or external forces that that uh, that act out on black people. We have never been safe as a people in this country as soon as our leadership that look like us deal with these real issues, it's going to be more problems moving forward. I just uh, figured I'd throw that out there, Richard. Uh, Tonight, joining us, and it's been, (laughs) Richard, it's been a while since uh, uh, Led Washington's been with us on the programs for a number of years, but but, uh, it's good to have him back. Author, professor of journalism at Temple University and award-winning investigative journalist. Professor Lynn Washington is with us. How are you, sir? Uh, good evening, gentlemen. How are you doing? I'm doing great. <laughs> Hear you loud and clear. I'm glad to have you back. Good, good. Glad to have you back on time for Awakening with myself and Brother Richard.
4: How, how you doing now?
10: How you doing, Richard? Every, everything's good. Great, um, great. I'm um, happy, to, happy to join you because, um, you know, these are times that uh, we need to have information and have discussion uh, but in terms of saying these are times, as you just noted, mm. there's always been times for us uh, right. in this place we call America, and I'm saying America spelled with three Ks at the end. <laughs> K-K-K-A. <laughs>
1: wow. hey, It's something. It's, um, Professor Watson, I, I want to kind of start this conversation off with what's going on on the continent. But before we do mm-hmm. that, if you wanted to say something in reference to uh, the incident that just happened in Jacksonville, Uh, You can do that, Um, and then I'll kind of introduce some things. Me and my brother Richard will kind of throw some things back and forth.
10: Yeah, um, yet, yet another incident of violent white supremacy, and yet another occasion where it seems like the collective body politic of America is forgetting some important context This took place in Florida, and I just saw before the program this evening, I was looking at the evening news, and the governor of Florida was in Jacksonville speaking about how this is intolerable and we can't have this. This is the guy who is actively aiding and abetting the type of hate that was manifest yesterday in that shooting. Let's remember, he's been on a war on woke. What is that? He's trying to oppose equity. He's opposed, uh, or, you know, eliminated equity, diversity, and inclusion programs in Florida. He has barred the teaching of AP black history in Florida. He has installed a person and as the head of this district that runs uh, the Disney World area, a black dude who used to be the president of the Urban League in that area, mm. this dude is making uh, over $400,000 a year. And just last week or the week before last, within the last 10 days, this black guy, or should I say Negro, eliminated all of the diversity equity and inclusion provisions for that particular district so the hundreds of millions of dollars that will be spent there will be no even pretense of trying to make sure that there's some equity in economic inclusiveness so what we saw yesterday is a part of what has been going on the news reporter said that uh, the fbi is going to uh, get involved uh, in this <laughs> oh really the same FBI that has been slow walking white supremacy for decades. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is um, shocking, but not surprising.
1: (laughs) Professor Washington, let's talk about the continent and what's going on there. It's been a major shift happening. um, And it's kind of accelerated within the past month, month and a half where several West, and it's always been uh, things going on in the Congo and in uh, the eastern uh, part of Africa, but West Africa seems to be on fire now with several uh, uh, countries uh, throwing out French influence, uh, things being categorized as coups. Uh, You hear um, some blacks that are on the continent uh, activists, uh, one of the past guests that was on our program, Eric kanna Chinnabor quayo and a few others, saying that these are not coups, uh, these are revolutions in these areas. But the news reports that we get, uh, blacks here in this country, uh, get a different story on what's going on, not only on the continent, in the islands, you see some similar things happening talk about this coverage from your perspective as a journalist and as an award-winning investigative reporter, uh, the balance that's there to talk about it from your perspective, because when we hear these things happening in the Ukraine and other places, it's reporters on the ground. Uh, it, it's, uh, uh, even though all of it is propaganda in my eyes to a certain degree, uh, they at least try to give people a a perspective of what's going on. Uh, But all you hear is assertions when you're talking about the continent. Uh, uh, Junta leaders, uh, uh, they almost want to call them gangs. The the, the way they characterize some of the people that have taken control in these areas and want the colonizers out. Talk about it from your perspective, uh, Professor Washington. Well,
10: the coverage of um, the continent, has not been fair, has not been accurate, and, not, has, and has not been balanced. Those three items, fairness, balance, and accuracy, or should I reverse that, accuracy, balance, and fairness, are supposed to be the bedrocks of journalism. And that hasn't been the case. When you speak over decades to African journalists, one of the criticisms that persists is that in terms of news coverage the, africa seems to be mired in the 3d's dictators debt and disease <clears throat> for many people you would not think that africa has teeming cities um you know with skyscrapers um you know people doing things other than um you know sitting on the ground uh starving with flies flying around them part of the problem and it's not just and i, I emphasize this is part of the problem part of the problem is that too few journalists are actually reporting from the continent many times the reporters are stationed in london they're stationed in paris they're stationed uh in switzerland you know geneva or one of those other um, cities where um you know, international flows come through. So they don't really know what's going on. Um, and those that are there um, who try to provide accurate information, <clears throat> a lot of it gets mangled uh, by the editors uh, when it gets put out. And, again, we don't see um, consistent coverage. So when we hear about some of these um say military interventions and whatever we we don't know the context of it uh one of the problems that's going on with uh, uh, say in west africa there has been a movement on on two fronts one uh, for those countries to get reparations from france for the colonial damage that it has done and also for france to uh surrender um the what is called the CFA franc in many parts of West Africa the currency is the franc not um indigenous uh, or not currencies indigenous to respective countries or even a, a, as a block and what happens is these countries have to send the money to France the money is held in France and then sent back um so france is making money off of everyday life uh in West Africa so we need um, better coverage, uh, and that's not to say that everything in terms of news media that comes out of Africa is wrong or distorted. It's just like here in America. Uh, too, too much of it <laughs> is distorted, and there's a persistent sliver of it which is you know just wrong-headed.
1: You know, we, we uh, uh, talked uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I read from a pub- published report that 60% of the gross national product of several of the francophone countries goes straight to france and then france charges them a 25 percent uh uh fee for putting it in their banks so over 85 percent of their money that is generated for and plus they got first right of refusal with any minerals or or things that they generate as far as the country's natural resources so over 85 percent of the money that is generated from these west african countries goes straight to france and right. i guess the other 15% that's left goes to the dictator that they have kind of uh, facilitating things for them i'm just assuming that part but the the other part deals with what you just stated about the overwhelming amount of money that's generated in those west african countries goes straight to france right and that
10: it literally bleeds those countries of their ability to do for themselves and to really help, you know, the little people on the ground, what we call over here the grassroots folks. Now, even if, and I say even if there was a sincere effort on the part of uh, too many of the leaders in Africa, um, they would be hobbled by these economic relationships that tilt heavily to France heavily to the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, which the United States controls. Um, and in this equation, I think we have to be honest, there has to be some fidelity to the fact that the, too many of the leaders in Africa have been more focused on in their own pockets than in helping improve the quality of life for their people. And, you know, we we, we hear, you know, we beat on our chest and we love Africa as we should, but uh, we need some accountability. Just as we hold accountable, just as we criticize many of our leaders here in the United States for not being uh, as responsive as they should to their constituencies. Uh, there's been an ugly legacy of that uh, in too many African countries uh, since the, the movement towards decolonization. Uh, that took place in the fifties, in the sixties, in the
1: seventies,
10: on the African continent.
4: Yeah, <laughs> you know, brother uh You know, we have we've been having a lot of discussion around, um, you know, the way things are being reported, and, and what comes to my mind to ask you as a question, and I probably, um, hopefully, I get to be considered zeroing out and placing historical context because I'm just. My questions are um, curiosity questions. Um, We know as a black, black um, news or journalism, historically, when you talk about having people on the ground, I'm I'm thinking of black newspapers. They did have people reporting at one point in time, Um, you know, whether it be the continent or other places. And, my first question comes in relationship to where we are now when we talk about journalism. And it's, and it's two different things in my mind. One, in the digital age, do we have a black um, journalist infrastructure? I mean, when I say journalists, I mean people, uh, uh, news agencies that have black journalists that are reporting um, about world events and how, say, um, here, white people here or, or on the continent... Inter, interconnect, um, you know, as a part of their, re, of their reporting. So my question is, in a digital age, um, how how do you characterize um, black reporting if, if that's a true um, question?
10: There are, um, let me say I can phrase this because I, I don't want to paint with a broad brush. There are entities on the continent that are run by people who are on the continent and they're providing news and, you know, posting the things online. The problem is we don't hear about that. Mm. We don't get enough of that coverage through our own media, you know, black-owned media here, and we definitely don't get it on um, the CNNs and the MSNBCs and those who purportedly are, um, quote, unquote, progressive. Uh, So those entities that are providing really good, solid coverage exist, but they're not known, they're not well-known, or should I say known enough. And part of that is related to lack of resources that they could do their own um, promotion. Uh, But the other piece, uh, there's another piece to this, and again, um, we'll, when we look at how people respond to things, very often people, not only here in America, but also in in Africa, give more credence to certain entities than other entities. Mm. So if we don't see something in the Enquirer, we could hear it on like your um, platform here, or WURD, or Philadelphia, Tribune or Scoop, but we're not going to give it the same credibility as it's, it's the Daily News and the Inquirer, despite mm-hmm. criticizing those, those two entities. Um, if, uh, you know, as a reporter over the decades, I've been to too many press conferences where, you know, people will wait a half an hour, 45 minutes until channel six arrives. Um, mm-hmm. And if channel six doesn't arrive, you know, they, what I'm just saying is that we, as a people or as peoples, have to give uh, more credence and respect to our own entities, uh, be they on the African continent, be they in um, in the Caribbean, and we need to ramp up uh, efforts to connect with those folks and um, be able to provide what's going on over there to our readers and listeners and viewers over here and conversely for them to uh, get uh, what's truly going on here versus, you know, reading it in the New York times or the Washington post when they
4: feel like getting around to uh, doing some comprehensive coverage. Now, now uh, as you gave that response, and then I'm laughing and smiling to myself because so you know, I say always tell people I'm, I may not be fair, so you don't have to respond. Because as a professor, I'm wondering, you know, and, and what you're describing, I, I can agree. Um, do you see where um, historically that shift, where especially quote unquote black people um, um, didn't, you know, respond to, or maybe I'm mischaracterizing your your response, but didn't respond to um, black media. Um, reporting um, in the same way they would respond waiting or or responding to black men, is there a historical moment where black people um didn't um utilize and, and demand black media and and journalism
10: let's just say it's um episodic and it's endemic i mean there there are times when you know there are issues that have been raised in black media and the community really hasn't embraced and rallied around. Um, but there's about, by, by the same token um, there has been an effort on the part of black media to report, say report on the African continent.
0: Mm-hmm.
10: The very first newspaper, black owned newspaper in the United States was called freedom's journal. And it appeared in New York around 1827. And they had um essentially an editorial that said what they wanted to do and what they were going to do, and they were going to stand up and you know push for the rights of black people, but one of their provisions was that is and i'm and please you know this is not verbatim, but mm-hmm. they were saying that all things about Africa will have ready publication in our newspaper. So even from the early 19th century, there was a recognition here about the need to have honest and accurate reporting over there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, I hate to say it's like a work in progress because, you know, after 200 years or so, it should be <laughs> more than a work in progress.
4: Right. right. Um,
10: but, uh, you know, we're, 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 we're trying to, um, you know, do, do, do better at this. But it, a lot of it takes money, and mm-hmm. you, you know you just don't get the money. And now with the media, the whole thing being turned upside down in terms of the revenue and how you can get 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 revenue. Um, you know, advertisements, um, um, the display ads um, are not coming in. You know, and you don't really make a lot of money on a, off a digital ad. So where do you get the revenue? Uh, a lot of news, a lot of news entities now are being funded by private corporations. Um, and those corporations, um, uh, tend not to, um, give a whole bunch of money to say like the black media. Mm -hmm. Now they give to entities that do employ black people and those people are sensitive and concerned and, you know, trying to improve the level of coverage. Um, but you know, we've had a, a, a black media, you know, literally since the, um, uh, Freedom's Journal, um, but uh, they just haven't gotten the uh, the economic support that they that they should. I mean, look at look at radio, right? When the first black owned radio station went on the air in 1949, radio had been existing as a commercial entity for decades. I mean, going back to the 1920s, and there were already radio networks, uh, NBC, um, uh, Westinghouse, and all of those. I mean, so they were big corporate entities before we even got one little something, something with a radio station. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think the first black owned television station uh, went on the air in Detroit until 1969. Um, So we've always been at a disadvantage in terms of being able to um, uh, control and, and expand our own media. Uh, so again, we continue now. This uh, digital age uh, offers some opportunities, but um, but it also has is um, I'm, I'm I'm losing the word here. But uh, with a newspaper, you know, you could always turn the pages. But you know, with the digital, um, you might go to one platform. The person next to you might go to, to another. So you know, some things that should be of value to both of of those readers or listeners. Um, It's just being lost because of the way that the the media now is being consumed. Mm.
1: Uh, Professor Washington, uh, from what you just said to Richard about the resources that's necessary, um, now this is just me saying this, but this is where the control comes in from other sources being able to basically control black media. Uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, black media entities, you know, they tout that they represent the community and these issues, and, and you see certain things out there. But some black media only goes but so far, and they go but so far because of the control that ex- that is exerted uh, by entities that provide money, and that puts the community at a disadvantage in my eyes.
10: Well, many times um, media entities will temper what they do, what they say as to not upset advertisers. Um, And that's true of, you know, like all media. But also if there was more support from within our community to strengthen our media. And it's not like this is a new concept.
0: Mm-hmm.
10: When I think about the um, the movement that Marcus Garvey founded, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, they had a newspaper.
5: Mm-hmm.
10: And that newspaper um, was literally circulated around the world. Um, you know, jumping back to West Africa and you know, in South Africa, there were laws passed in many then colonized countries that if you were caught with a copy of um, Garvey's newspaper, you could be thrown in jail or executed because it was that fear of what that information would do. Um, And when the UNIA was um, crushed by the federal government, their newspaper went by the wayside. Um, So, you know, we have to support our own media and then at, from there, we can demand that there's, you know, better uh, resource allocation and, and, and support. Um, and when you look at, say, um, the, the CNNs and, and the um, uh, MSNBCs and uh, those type of entities, they will bring on black journalists. But when have you seen a black journalist from, say, the Tribune on there as a regular mm. guest? Um, you just don't see it. So, uh, but you will see some digital platform that you've never even heard of. You know, eighteen seventy seven uh, dot com. Yes, and this is the executive editor of eighteen seventy seven dot com. Welcome to the show this evening. <laughs> it's it's um, it's kind of ridiculous, but you know, it's uh, life in America right now.
4: Hey, Elliot and, and, and Lynn, if I can, the one thing that uh, confuses me is the, what is the difference, if there is any, between journalism and reporting? Is there a difference? Well, uh, interesting that you asked that.
10: <laughs> reporting is supposed to be the basis of journalism. Journalism is to provide, well, let me say what it's supposed to in terms of the constitutional scheme in America, why there is that provision in the first amendment of freedom of the press is that the news media what they. And at the time that the first amendment was put together and the constitution was put together, the media was just publishers because we didn't have radio. We didn't have TV. We didn't have the internet. Um, But the purpose for providing protections for the dissemination of information was, one, to provide information to the public because democracy was supposedly built on the fact that you had a, quote, informed electorate. Mm. And if people had more information about what's going on around them, then they can make better choices in terms of who's going to represent them in government. And then there was another provision, and this one – so often gets um, forgotten, or shall I say, overlooked. And that was for the media to provide a watchdog role, initially on government, but also now onto on the, um, you know, the power people w- with power. Again, to make sure that those entities, be they government or private, are working in the best interests of the most number of people. Now, that's what it was conceptually. That's what it was theoretically. But that's not the way it has ever been. Um, I think about nine eleven and I'm not talking about that nine eleven I'm talking about a nine eleven that happened um in, in a place in in Lancaster County. I think it was in eighteen forty two a um a slave owner from Baltimore came up to an area called Christiana mm. to capture three pieces of his property, three black men who ran off and um the blacks in the area um rallied and told the man that it would be best for him to just turn around and go back to baltimore he insisted on staying and trying to um recapture his slaves uh, he had a us marshal with him and a small posse uh that particular slave owner a methodist minister did go back to Baltimore in a pine box. Mm-hmm. There was a shootout. Now it was known in history as the Christiana Riot. But I bring up this incident to say that um, we, still, we probably heard of him, the the Underground Railroad operator.
0: Mm-hmm. And
10: in his book, there is a chapter on the Christiana Riot, and he, and in there they were writing that they got the initial report on it from a black journalist who had gone out there, but they being, you know, we instill and, and a few of his friends went out a few days after this happened because they wanted to get the information themselves because, you know, according to his account, they couldn't trust what they were reading in the other newspapers of the day the quote unquote white owned newspapers. So there is a real value for us telling our own story. And that's what um, Freedom's Journal editorial said. It said, you know, we want to tell our own story. We want, to, we want to plead our own case. For too long, others have spoken for us. And for too long, they've spoken wrongly about us. Um, so it's, it's a, a, a real critical importance that we have our own media to tell our own story. And we really can't expect anybody else to tell our story for us. It's our story.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Professor Washington, in your opinion, how should our people here, and I'm talking about black people living in America, be viewing or perceiving or even understanding what's going on in West Africa presently? And the reason I'm saying that is because uh, a overwhelming majority of our people here, uh that's the land of our nativity. I mean, some people mm-hmm. feel as though I'm from Georgia, I'm from South Carolina, that might be where you were born. But the land of our nativity is where a lot of this stuff is going on now. And if you look back, because they just had a commemoration for the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington, if you look back at the 60s, a couple of the two major figures in the 60s, both King and Malcolm, had ties to West Africa. Uh, King went over to the uh, to Ghana when they became independent. Uh, he was invited to the birth to, to the independence celebration. Yep. Yes, yeah, so and Malcolm uh, toured Africa. In fact, the the uh, the uh, OAAU was based on or, or modeled after Nkrumah's uh, OAU. So it was right. a re- it was a relationship, and plus a lot of the the uh, men that had become rulers in Africa independent rulers had been educated here. Some of them. So it was a, it uh, was Go ahead. No,
10: no, no. I, uh, I didn't mean
1: to cut you off. I'll no, uh, what, roll it uh, in
10: when I respond.
1: All I'm saying, it was a special relationship between the brothers and sisters on the continent and what was going on and here. But now mm-hmm. you see the overwhelming majority of, of our leadership. Don't even talk about what's going on there. In fact, they right. they seem to side with Western imperialists. Whether you're talking about Linda Thomas Greenfield, whether you're talking about Lloyd Austin, Michael Langley, uh, Jeffrey Meeks, all of these people seem to side with Western imperialism, and they don't. There, it's no relationship there, and some of our people don't even see a relationship. So, I mean, how right. should, in your opinion, how should our people be viewing this? Uh
10: well. Given our uh, affinity and, and, and definitely ancestral relationship to Africa and, you know, our, our like and love for the continent, we need to do more. We need to do more to make ourselves aware. And One is to read as much as you can. Um, we need to, um, I think, retool a little bit of the black history uh, lessons uh, a little more. Yes, we need to know... <laughs> What happened in ancient uh, Egypt and in Nubia and all of that, but we also need to know what's going on in, in the contemporary sense. Uh, how can you get more information about what's currently going on? Uh, read as much as you can, but not just news entities in America. Now, despite their issues and problems, you know, read the BBC. Read the, um, uh, read the, uh, the, the, there's a news service out of France, uh, that, um, that publishes in English. Uh, read publications from the continent. Say, for example, in South Africa, there's a newspaper, a very vibrant newspaper, uh, in Soweto, Soweto called The Sweaten. You can get all the stuff online. Um, so, you know, we need to do more to educate ourselves and that has to be a, um, a personal mission. Now, listen, I, I know folks, um, uh, so much of our, any working day is taken up with just life 101. And I recognize that I am in a very unique position because my job is to stay away, aware of things. You know, if I had another type of job, maybe I wouldn't have the time to do that. Okay. But these are uh, ways that people can do things. There has been a very vibrant and extraordinary uh, history um, with the continent. You talked about King going to the independence uh, celebration in Ghana. Well, uh, Kwame Nkrumah studied here in the Philadelphia area. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, the first um, president of the independent Nigeria, I think, Adamo Yatsikwe, he, he was studying in this area. Um, what is little known is that before Dr. King got his Nobel Peace Prize in 64, in 1962, he issued a call for an economic boycott of apartheid South Africa in conjunction with the then-president, of the ANC who was under um, house arrest. Now understand Mandela was in prison, but the then president of the ANC and King issued this call on December 10th, 1962, which is a human rights day. And these are the types of things that that we should be putting into our education that we should be recognizing. Um, And they kind of get like pushed aside. I mean, we're talking about now the uh, tomorrow being the commemoration of the March on Washington. Well, it was the March on Washington, but what was it? It's the March for Jobs and Freedom. Mm -hmm. And when we talk about the I Have a Dream speech, the I Have a Dream part was just a few paragraphs that came after an extraordinary delineation of the nightmare that black people live that King gave. We say nothing about the nightmare part, and we latch on to the dream. But even if we latch on to the dream, what was he talking about? He was saying that, you know, he has a dream, essentially, <laughs> that racists in Mississippi and Alabama will stop being racist. And we that kind of just gets pushed off to the side. So, you know, we have to have a fidelity to facts and, and, and the history and we can't allow this kind of like McDonald, McDonaldization of of our history. Mm. You know, Dr. King and, 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 and Rosa Parks and uh, Harriet Tubman—they did extraordinary things, but they're not the only folks. Okay, yes. the A.M.E. Church that was founded here in Philadelphia by Richard Allen—they were sent people over to South Africa and their training and their education helped birth a series of leaders over there. And it was bishops from here that went over there. One of the first bishops to go over there, um, was a journalist. He, he ran the, um, the AME's uh, newspaper, the Christian Recorder. Um, so, you know, we, we have to start raising up other people who have done a lot and recognize what they're doing. And if we start talking about some of the people who are close to us and people who we can touch, I think history would have a, a, more of a resonance. Um, you know, Dr. King, I mean, everybody says, hey, well, he was just down south doing his thing. Well, what about the William Stills? Well, we can see a historic marker down on 12th Street in Center City. What about the Garvey uh, Hall that's on uh, Cecil B. Moore Boulevard at 16th, between 16th and 17th Streets? Um, so, you know, we, we, we need to raise up what we have done and really embrace it um, as opposed to just taking it for granted and yeah. doing things the way uh,
4: other people have
10: defined for us to do.
4: I was in part of a listening to a discussion um here locally and they were talking about um um reporting and journalism and and, and it was specifically around North Philadelphia and and the, I guess the question was around um you know is the reporting um actually characterizing you know the community in the in an appropriate manner you know, the way things are reported um, re- kind of reinforces uh, maybe negative characterization. Um, I wanted to get your view on that. Is, is When we talk about urban reporting is in the Black community, is the reporting um, the, basically reinforcing negative stereotypes, as you see, as a part of whether it's the business model, the scarcity of journalists, or Or you know whatever the the rationale may be, but the question of how incidents are seen and and written for the broader community to observe what's going on um is it is is that if that makes sense to you
10: oh it, it does make sense um I can say you know in in all fairness and again fidelity to the fact that the reporting has gotten better. uh, If we're talking about just 10% better, that's better than zero. (laughs)
0: Um,
10: So, you know, we just take these things incrementally. um, But there's still those negative um, type of perceptions. Um, uh, Right before I got on there, I was making a a PowerPoint for um, my class tomorrow. And I was pointing out how so often uh, when crime occurs, wherever it occurs, it seems to come with a North Philadelphia handle on it. And I think back, well, maybe like two years ago now, there was a person who pulled a gun in a Mexican food restaurant because their burrito wasn't made -made quick enough. And, of course, the person, you know, after they pulled the gun, they ran out and, you know, that's their burrito there. Mm -hmm. Um, But the first reports was that, you know, a uh, gun pulled at a Chipotle in North Philadelphia. Well, no, it wasn't North Philadelphia. It was in the Northeast. Mm. It was in the Ronhurst section of the Northeast. But some of the initial reports was that it was in North Philadelphia. Uh, so that sort of thing needs to be cleaned up. Uh, reporters need to do more to try to understand context and how things came up. Uh, or should I say how things evolved, uh, one of the things I'm, I'm mentioning in, in class a lot um, a number of years ago, it's probably about 20 years ago now, um, maybe even a little bit longer, there was a story in the Enquirer um, related to housing in North Philadelphia. And it was a summer very similar to the summer we had here with a lot of rain, and as a lot of the rain, a lot of the abandoned houses that were uh, in the area started collapsing so the article was pretty much framed, you know, how is this happening? Well, do we blame William Penn for building his city on essentially a swamp? And Philadelphia is basically a swamp. They've covered over a lot of the, you know, streams and, and lakes and, you know, built stuff on it. Um, and then it started working through, you know, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? And it finally got to the point in, in the 70s where it was saying, well, Mayor Rizzo, wanted to tear down a lot of the dilapidated houses, and the people in North Philadelphia fought against it. Well, that lacked very critical context because people were fighting against the demolition of homes in North Philadelphia Mm -hmm. because the Rizzo administration flat refused to do any rehabilitation of houses. They did that in South Philadelphia, low interest loans, outright grants, new sidewalks, uh, Hmm. you know, rehabilitation loans, they wouldn't spend a dime in North Philadelphia. And the people said, okay, well, if you're not going to fix the houses, we're not going to let you tear the houses down. Hmm. But the way the article was framed, it was the people who were fighting to um, keep abandoned houses abandoned. Well, that wasn't the case. So reporters need to do a lot more in terms of trying to understand what they're reporting on. Just because you're a reporter doesn't mean that gives you a an automatic uh, insight on being accurate in terms of the, in the particular thing that you're reporting on.
1: Before I kind of shift gears and 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 uh, go to a, a different uh, area of discussion, uh, Professor Washington, uh, explain the difference between just the you know regular uh, reporter and an investigative reporter because i don't see uh you know and i look at a lot of different uh news stories news publications uh uh different entities broadcasting and whenever they bring an investigative reporter on we're hearing hearing from this investigative reporter or we're we're going to hear from so and so they're always white you rarely see a black investigative reporter Talk about the difference between a regular reporter and an investigative reporter.
10: Uh, this may seem kind of a little bit strange, but I heard um, an investigative reporter say this once, that all reporting is or should be investigative reporting. Okay. Because you need to get below the surface. Okay. Too often, reporting is repeating. They're just acting like stenographers. We'll take down what somebody says accurately, but we won't dig in and try to see if they're being truthful or not or not truthful, if what they're saying is factual, uh, how did this actually happen. So more specific to your question, regular reporters deal with stuff on a day-to-day basis, maybe two or three days they're doing some some reporting on something, and then they will produce a story either for broadcast or for um, posting online or uh, for print. Investigative reporting is supposed to be um, reporting where you really dig in. Um, you take weeks to, you know, learn, interview with pe- interview people, you know, get documents, uh, check records. Uh, so you're doing something more in depth. Okay. And that's pretty much the essence of investigative reporting. Investigative reporters should be. Veteran reporters, people who have a lot of experience, and I know a lot of um, young people, um, and I teach them all the time, or let me put this here in my classes all the time, I'm going to be an investigative reporter. Well, that's good, but, you know, at this stage uh, in your career, you don't have the capacity to be an investigative reporter because you don't have the experiences. You don't know how things fit together. And that's something that uh, differentiates a uh, an investigative reporter, but investigative reporting should be in-depth reporting, as opposed to just um, you know running out covering a press conference and running back. Uh, that's there, there, there's a, a a real difference, and it's a, a difference with a distinction. Mm-hmm.
1: And I think you answered the question why there are not that many black investigative reporters. In your answer, so I think you answered that question.
10: Well, well, no, no there are a lot, but okay. you just don't see them. Okay. Um, we okay. have a temple, um, what is a, a new entity called the Logan Urban Investigative Reporting uh, Center, and a former uh, Daily News reporter, a black female, Yvonne Laddie. Uh, is now the director of that and she's trying to change that dynamic one of the things that um, causes her concern (laughs) is the white face of of investigative reporting yes okay Um, yeah I I, I, back in the 90s I um, was uh, doing some investigative reporting for the black press um, their national organization And there was a situation where a black reporter for a white newspaper up in um, for a small community outside of New York City. Anyway, Long story short, he gets in on a story um, dealing with um, General Motors. General Motors had a program where they were trying to, quote, unquote, increase the number of blacks in dealerships. And they were discriminating against the black people who were going into that program. So he wrote a story about it and he got shut down right? And by his news organization. General Motors came in and threatened them. Mm. If you continue to write this and report on it, um, we're going to pull our advertising from you. And he was working for uh, the Gannett chain and they just backed up and wilted you know, like a flower in in, in the sun with no water. They tried to do the same thing with uh, the black press, right? They, uh, when I say they, I mean um, General Motors people um, went down to Washington, D.C. and sat down and were having a meeting with the uh, black press. And they said, you know, we want you to take this this Washington guy off the story. And if you don't do it, we're going to pull all our advertising from you. And at the time, the president of the organization uh, was a black female publisher out of Chicago, a real feisty woman. She said, okay, we'll take your money. And GM was kind of like, what, what? GM had a $2 billion ad budget at that time. General Motors, $2 billion that they were putting into media for advertisement for their car and and, and their products. The budget for the black press, all 210 papers was $236,000, not $236,000 per paper, but $236,000 for all 200 papers. Mm Mm-hmm. So, hey, you know, uh, blacks uh, go through some real stuff. So anyway, this reporter, what happened to him was ugly. The GM sued, his papers sold him out. Uh, This guy was tied up for years fighting in court, trying to, you know, get his reputation back. And he never did get back into journalism. But he's not recognized as an investigative reporter. And Mm. so many other Blacks who have done investigative reporting, they're not, quote, unquote, considered investigative reporters. Uh, That title seems to, you know, uh, be worn by only a certain demographic.
1: Okay.
10: And it's wrong. But uh, we've always had um, investigative reporters uh, that uh, have been from
1: our race. Um. You know what? This is what I'm going to do, because I, I, I want to shift some gear, shift gears a little bit. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll continue the discussion, and you can get involved, too, by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. We're in conversation with author and professor of journalism at Temple University, Professor Lynn Washington. We'll be right back.
6: Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today
12: 484-268-9836. The digital plantation. abibitumi.com, 2 mecom IB2Me.tv, 2 me.store are here for you. You are ready to be free of non-African social media. Don't run from danger, run to safety. Abibitumi.com is here for you. You are ready to be free of digital plantations to control your own products. Abibitumi.store is here for you. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. Black Power. A-B-I-B-I-T-U-M-I. The only word you need to know to join your Global Commits You Black Family. To join your interconnected, commit to you black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. Abibitumi.com, Abibitumi.tv, Abibitumi.tv.com, Abibitumi.store. We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation. A new
2: era, a new phase of the struggle where we have moved from a struggle for decency, which characterized our struggle for ten or twelve years to a struggle for genuine equality. And this is where we are getting the resistance because there was never any intention uh, to go this far. People were reacting to Bull Connor and to Jim Clark rather than acting in good faith for the realization of genuine equality. Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregation as people devoid
13: or thinking they're devoid of racism. Do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in
2: America? I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they're always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far.
14: And know that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep
11: Whites are expert game players in their contests to maintain absolute power. One of their time-honored gimmicks is to point to individual blacks who've achieved recognition. But look at Rath Bunch. Think about Lena Horne or Mary Anderson. Look at Jackie Robinson. They made it as one of those who has made it. I would like to be thought of as an inspiration to our young but I don't want them lied to. Name them for me. Examples of blacks who made it. For virtually everyone you name, I can give you a sordid piece of factual information on how they have been mistreated, humiliated. Not being able to fight back is a form of severe punishment.
2: I come here tonight and plead with you. If the Negro is to be free, he must move down into the inner resources of his own soul and sign with a pen and ink of self-assertive manhood his own emancipation (laughs) proclamation. Don't let
13: anybody take your manhood.
11: Awakening is a proud part of the Black Talk Radio Network, the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform.
1: Welcome back to Time for an Awakening. Sunday edition is 8.13 here on Time for an Awakening. Our guest this evening, author, professor of journalism at Temple University, Professor Lynn Washington, is with us in discussion. Just uh, discussing a myriad of issues that affect our people locally, nationally, and internationally. And you can join the conversation, too, by dialing 215-490-9832. That's 215-490-9832. Professor Washington, um, in late June, I think around 2830 or something like that, uh, the Supreme Court overturned uh, affirmative action, uh, which was supposedly just related to education. But knowing our struggles here in this country, uh, it's not limited to or just related to education. Uh, mm-hmm. We see, uh, and let, let me read from this uh, published report that was issued by Gibson and Dunn, which is one of the top law firms in this country, uh, over 100 years old. Uh, when ju- this was on July 13th to our clients and friends. It says attorney generals of 13 states, Alabama, Arkansas, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, South Carolina, Tennessee, and West Virginia, issued a warning to the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies uh, threatening legal consequences over the race-based employee preference and diversity policies. While the Supreme Court's holding addressed only college and university admissions and not private sector employers. This letter confirms that the court's decision may have broader implications than that could accelerate an existing trend of challenges to private employees' workplace equity and inclusion efforts. The Democrats and Republicans' empo- employees to the EEOC have stated that the Supreme Court's decision should not affect employers' diversity programs, although they have widely divergent views on the implications of the decision in practice. So we see here that um, this decision that was passed down by the Supreme Court is going to have wider implications. Because if you look at our struggles here in this country, uh, blacks became middle class and a lot, and a percentage of blacks became middle class in the late sixties. After a lot of those laws were passed, blacks start getting, uh, state jobs, uh, federal job, work for the post office, uh, different municipal jobs, things like that. And they were able to move into the quote unquote middle class. But with a lot of these laws being overturned, it's going to have r- serious implications in the black community. And the alarm, in my opinion, is not being uh, sounded by our elected officials that are supposed to represent us. Uh, give me your opinion on the Supreme Court's decision and the broader implications in in your estimation. Mm-hmm. Professor Watson? Hi, Elliot. Oh, yeah. Are you there? Yeah,
10: yeah, yeah. You, you were cutting out, or I don't know, maybe it's on, on my end. Um, the Supreme Court is doing what it has historically done, and that is minimize and mangle the recognition of the rights of black Americans. In 1883, they issued a ruling that, Nullified some of the civil rights bills that were passed after the Civil War.
0: Mm-hmm.
10: One of our premier leaders at the time, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner, yes. called that decision a diabolical sham. Now, in the decision, they said that it was unfair for the government and thus unconstitutional for the government to implement laws that impacted individuals. They said if if it was the government that was discriminating, then yes, that would be unconstitutional and we would stand up against it. But it is unfair to make a restaurant owner, a hotel owner, this one and that one, to have them stop discriminating against it. That's gone too far. They went on to say that if we ever find a case where the government is instituting discrimination, then we're going to stop it. That was 1883, and Bishop Henry McNeil Turner called it right. It was a diabolical sham. Because in 1896, when a case went before the Supreme Court dealing with government-backed discrimination, Jim Crow discrimination, What did the Supreme Court do? They came out with a case in Plessy versus Ferguson that said that we could, we should have separate but equal segregation. It is okay for the government to discriminate against Negroes as long as they're offered equal provisions. So the issue was, uh, it came out of Louisiana, I think it was uh, was New Orleans, and Mr. Plessy, who could pass for white, because he was so light, he was denied a seat on a train. They said, you need to go to the colored car in the rear. And he said, I paid the same amount of fare as everybody else. I can sit where I want. Sounds like Rosa Parks, right? Uh, But they created this new standard called separate but equal segregation, and that ushered in, or should I say they gave an imprimatur to Jim Crow laws, and that stuff lasted until the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. So what they're doing now is the same kind of a retreat. In the, oh gosh, yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm probably mangling dates, but in the 90s, uh, Pennsylvania eliminated uh, its affirmative uh, affirmative action programs at the state level because there was a cry that it was reverse discrimination against whites. Now, at the time, almost 87% of all of the heads of state agencies and managers and all of that were white. Um, Contracts were overwhelmingly going to white businesses. But they claimed that an effort to try to remediate that, minimal effort to remediate that, was unfair and discriminatory against white people. Mm-hmm. And now we have this instance where this conservative group who had failed at the Supreme Court a few years ago went and co-opted some Asians and they went after affirmative action at at Harvard and I think it was also the University of North Carolina. There was some other school. Mm-hmm. Their claim was that provisions that helped increase or gave um, a, an effort for blacks and Hispanics to get into these institutions discriminated against Asians. Now, curiously, in these attacks on affirmative action, what is never, ever attacked is legacy admissions. Where someone who is a big donor to an institution or someone um, whose parents and grandparents went there get an automatic admission. A former president, George W. Bush, was able to get into Harvard and Yale through legacy admissions. This is a guy who drank and snorted cocaine. He mm-hmm. wasn't a scholar. <laughs> yeah. and and there was a guy who um, is now running amok in this country, Donald Trump. Do you think that he got into the Wharton School because he was smart? No, it was a legacy admission. But they never go after that. Now, the background on this current case was that this – got to choose my words here <laughs> or stop saying what I really want to say. <laughs> There was this white conservative who had been trying to go after and knock out affirmative action. So he initially brought a case that came out of Texas. Texas, in terms of trying to tiptoe around not giving fairness in, in, uh, to, to black people, instituted a program that anyone who graduated in the top 10% of their class from high school would get an admission to a Texas institu- uh, institution, you know, University of Texas or whatever. And they selected this white girl um, who said that she didn't get into the University of Texas, although she wasn't in the top 10% of her class, she wasn't even in the top 20% of her class, never took any AP courses or none of that kind of stuff. Um, and she said it was she didn't get in because those, I mean, those Negroes got in. And the Supreme Court said, not nah, get out of here. But now, you know, different kind of mentality, different kind of attitude. We get this particular ruling. This ruling is coming from justices who sit on the Supreme Court and they identify as conservatives who, for the better part, have never hired a black person to be their law clerk. Mm. Now, you can say what you want about him, and yeah, I think he's, we should say enough and kick him as he goes down. But Clarence Thomas, as a conservative, has brought on a few black law clerks, but for the better part, the Alitos um, and now the um, what's this Gorsuch and, and those type folks—they don't have black law clerks. Now, why is that important? Well. A couple of things. One, the law clerks are the ones who do the initial reads on the court on, on the court cases and decide what cases that the they should bring to the justices to say, I think we need to deal with it, or I think we shouldn't. So if these people have either limited understanding, ignorance, or bigotry, certain cases don't get up to the Supreme Court. But being a law clerk for the US Supreme Court, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, Pennsylvania Superior Court, helps boost a lawyer's career. The Chief Justice of the Supreme Court right now, John Roberts, was a law clerk. And many others who are now sitting on a court were law clerks, so you could see the the process. So we have a court that practices internal discrimination now looking out saying, we don't see discrimination and there's no need for it. Remember many of the people who made that ruling were also who sent on um, who issued a ruling a number of years ago who said that there's no more voting rights discrimination in the south and so we need to uh, nullify provisions in the 1965 Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. that required federal oversight of elections in southern states that had a history of discrimination. And what happened in the wake of that ruling, they started putting in more voter suppression um, uh, laws. And as you rightly noted, that in the wake of this particular ruling on affirmative action that supposedly just dealt with education, there are now laws that have eliminated um, affirmative action programs. In government, they want to eliminate uh, affirmative action, or should we say diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's the new phrase, <laughs> yeah. in the military. So they're just running amok. This ruling allowed them to just run amok. In Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania, let me go to Pennsylvania and then I'll just bump down to Philadelphia. Historically, black-owned firms have received just crumbs mm-hmm. at best in terms of contracting from government, hmm. governments don't make nothing. They make problems, but they, they don't make toilet paper. They don't make this. They don't make this. They have to hire outside vendors for that. And blacks do not have not historically been given, you know, equitable um, provisions with that. So there was a, a recession in the late seventies. The government passed a bill uh, to put um, money into the system, to help, you know, in the, in the recession. And there was affirmative action requirements for people who did contracting and, you know, big contractors, be it, you know, roads or bridges or whatever. And the contractors association of Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Pennsylvania went to court to say that no, these provisions discriminate against us. Now they're getting 95 to 97% of the contracts, But this law that would only give maybe, you know, one or 2% or take away one or 2% of their business was discriminating against them. And in their lawsuits, they had the audacity to say that this law makes us do business with people who we don't want to do business with. Mm -hmm. They were very naked about their racism. And the appellate court judge who told them to go pile sand said that you're right. That's the purpose of this law. But it worked its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they um, eliminated um, affirmative action uh, in government contracting in a case that came out of Richmond.
0: Mm-hmm. And they said
10: that there was no history of racism in contracting in Richmond. Richmond, Virginia, the same Richmond, Virginia, that was the capital of the Confederacy. And Thurgood Marshall said that in his eloquence, as a Supreme court justice, this is foolishness. There is a documented history and you guys have ignored it. Oh, you guys and gal, because Sandra Day O'Connor was uh, uh, in on that ruling too. So they, they continue to play these games and, and have this legalistic manipulation of it. But one of the, Myriad of problems with this is that many people go through law school without having an understanding of the history of racism. And that's what critical race theory is about. Looking at how the law has played a critical role in sustaining institutional racism uh, in the country. I was at the Yale Law School in the late 80s on, on a fellowship, And they had classes, and most people took – well, everybody had to take constitutional law. And during the constitutional law class, they had one week, two class sections dealing with all of the civil rights cases, employment, (laughs) voter, education. So how much understanding could you get? There was an anti-discrimination law course, but it was an elective course. So consequently, people like Clarence Thomas, uh, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, and all them could go through a place like Yale without getting any kind of understanding about the impact that racism has played in terms of the law and I would venture to say that um, that things have not radically improved in terms of having lawyers with some understanding uh, about um, the role of
4: racism, uh, played in the law. Uh, you, know, you know, it raises a question for me uh, is, you know, in your experience, is there a lot of journalists that are, that have legal background? Um, um
10: no, no. And that was one of the purposes of the, of this CL program to give, um, journalists a better understanding of the law so they could better report on the law. And journalists, just like so many other folks, um, when they hear law, they kind of like, ooh, yes, you know, you, you're, you're, it's the law, and, and I don't know anything about it. Well, if you read, you can really understand most of these um, Supreme Court rulings because they deal with the facts. And uh, so, you know, law shouldn't be something that scares people, but it does. And thus, you don't get um, as good a reporting as you should on on, on legal issues. And with so many issues, you don't get the context. Um, let me give you an example of context. Uh, one of the um, Confederates that is, is being indicted with um, Donald Trump is a guy named Rudolph Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, right? So over the last week, you know, now that he's been indicted and he had to turn himself in and he doesn't have any money and he's going broke all of these criminal cases, that he's now confronting because of all the criminal conduct that he's engaged in. The news reporters, and you probably heard it. How is it that Rudy Giuliani, America's mayor could find himself in this position? Yeah. Well, let me give you an example of why. <laughs> there was a, um, a, a black columnist, uh, Ron Daniels, um, in 1998, wrote in a column and said, "No big city mayor has been more openly contemptuous of black people than Giuliani." For black people who lived in New York during the time of Giuliani's reign, he was a bigot. But for the most of the media, he was America's mayor. Let's remember on 9/11, we yeah, had that one when you know the World Trade Ten- Trade Towers were. Um, burned down. What did, Rudy, what did Rudy Giuliani try to do? He was term limited. He had served three terms. He had to leave. He started a campaign that included putting pressure on the governor to do two things. One, to allow him to stay in office and pretty much void the election that was coming up in November of uh, 2001 and or to change the law to allow him to run for office again. Sound familiar? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
10: but that context of who Rudy is and what Rudy was is not even in the discussion today. And we us remember another thing. We have an opioid crisis in United States where those who are now in the grips of substance abuse addiction, they ain't junkies, they ain't addicts, they white. That's why it's substance abuse problems. Well, the company that uh, that makes oxycodone, the federal government at one point and the state of Florida were getting ready to investigate them for the very marketing and promotion practices that helped ignite the opioid crisis across the United States. That company hired a law firm that had just been set up by America's mayor. And Rudy Giuliani went to the federal government and went to the state of Florida and quashed those investigations. And now we have an opioid crisis in the United States. But none of this is brought into how did Rudy get to where he is now? Because he was a bum. That's how we get there. But we need that context, and we don't get it from
4: the media. Mm. <laughs> yeah, thank you, for that.
1: <laughs> hey, Richard. I know
4: you wanted to uh, to, uh, to uh, no. talk about. You the, know, right? I, I, hey, hey, Elliot. I hear uh, Brother Lynn kind of he's starting to open up here. He he he, he on a roll here right now. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, now, hold, I hold, did a
1: little prep <laughs> to talk to you tonight. Hold, hold it before you introduce the uh, the, the reparations piece, which is, I'm going to go to a couple of these calls. Uh, 267, 267, are you there?
8: Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I had it on mute. No problem. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, how are you doing, Brother Elliot and uh, uh, Professor Lynn Washington? Um, yeah, well, in a, in a lot live- of I wanted to talk about, you know, in the news, you've seen where they had Negroes for Trump, Blacks for Trump. Well, what about uh, Blacks for Elijah Muhammad, Blacks for Farrakhan, Blacks for the New World, Blacks for God? See, um, God never said that he would send a politician to save and oppress people. You know, um, the, the white man's poly, poly, uh, political system was never designed to benefit Black people. We, you know, we could check this out in Scripture— and Elijah Muhammad and Minister Far- uh, his national representative, Minister Farrakhan, teach us that separation is the only solution to this black and white race problem. Well, really, black people are not a race because we don't have no beginning or end. Um, be- but be- separation is because that we cannot live with white people in peace. And Minister Farrakhan, he said that we we need to hold our votes and get our own independent party and demand for something that, 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 that's beneficial to us. Like, for example, separation. Eight to ten states here in America. And and they can give us 20 to 25 years of raw material, here or abroad. Bottom line, black people, we are native on, 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 this, on this entire planet. White people, you have limited space caves and hillsides of Europe. Now, they also talk about the BRICS. This is um, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and there's some other African nations, Arab nations that are going to um, get their own currency and cut uh, the United States off, their, their currency. Now, what's going to also happen is the way America makes their food, it's like you're eating... Uh, plastic with larry season salt. You know, this this GMO and this fake meat and stuff, the nations are not going to want America's food. And in some cases, the way America is so savage and barbaric, they ain't even going to allow some of the, uh, our people in there. But in the news recently on another topic, they said that they have a concern of a new variant that, that's coming in. So now they're going to threaten to wear masks shutdowns and all that kind of stuff. People, especially black people, we, we should not fall for this propaganda. These jabs, talking about these jazz save lives. No, they're taking lives. If you look in the news, you notice how how, how these healthy black athletes, young black athletes are are falling from cardiac arrest and even uh, dying like that 17-year-old basketball player. Look at Le- LeBron James' son. Now, in, in the article in the, in the final call newspaper, the greatest informative black-owned newspaper of all time, it had the article uh, talked about depopulation. The Amish people didn't take the jabs. You know, they didn't even go to the hospital. They used herd immunity, natural remedies, ivermectin, and and and, and made out fine without the jabs. And, and they didn't even and, yeah, they didn't even go to the have to go to the hospital. So don't take these jabs or you may take your life. You could call Dr. Sophia Shabaz, or there's an article in the um, Final Call newspaper that tells you things that you can take to, to, um, to, to, to prevent the uh, COVID uh, virus or uh, to um, fight the COVID virus like vitamin D, C, zinc, ivermectin, alpha interferon.
4: Do you have and, a question? And,
8: uh, do you have a question? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh n- no the uh, only thing that I would would, would would ask is uh do you know anything about the BRICS?
1: Okay. But thanks for your contribution,
8: brother.
10: Yes Thank you. Um BRICS is a economic union, uh as the the caller rightly noted, that involves Brazil, Russia. India, uh, China, and South Africa. And they are a part of what is known as the Global South. And they're trying to kind of counter, they're just trying to create an entity with, which would counterbalance the NATOs and, and the, the World Banks and, and the International Monetary Fund. Um, there's a conference that either is going on or just ended, and some other countries want to get involved in it. Um yeah, watch what happens with with the flow of money. In the world, the international currency is the dollar. If you buy oil, you gotta use the dollar. If you buy gold, you gotta use the dollar. If you buy food, you gotta use the dollar. And the use of the dollar as this international currency um keeps prices low in America. And when the dollar does not become this international currency, then our monetary system and the U.S. monetary system goes out of whack, and prices will go up. You know, something kind of interesting. And of course, you know, this is just a coincidence. <laughs> um, there was a leader of a country called Iraq. And a guy named Saddam Hussein. Now, uh, you know, I'm not defending Saddam Hussein. He was, you know, a bad guy in terms of the little people in his country. But at one point, he said that he was no longer going to accept dollars to buy his oil. You either had to give him gold or you had to use euros. And within months, Iraq was invaded. Mm. Libya under Gaddafi people had free and low cost housing gasoline was like two cents a gallon I'm I'm being a little facetious but you know the people in Libya were living well Mm -hmm. irrespective of you know what you think of, of, of Gaddafi the people who live in Libya were not impoverished Gaddafi indicated that he was going to use his gold to fund a currency for the continent of Africa. And next thing we know, Libya is being invaded. And he said that his guard unit, his personal guard unit was taking Viagra and going around raping people and, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff in the media. So, you know, this money thing is really, <laughs> is really the cutting edge. And, you know, a r- little bit earlier we talked about um, um, the um, CFA franc and what, what, what France is doing. So we're going to see more alignments of countries in the global south, non European, America, Canada, Australian countries trying to form their own or, or building out, building out their economic uh, uh, relationships. But there's some, you know, rocky stuff that goes on in there. Um, Brazil has <laughs> um, all but decimated the chicken market in South Africa. Brazil is somehow able to bring chickens to South Africa cheaper than South Africans are able to grow chickens. Um, so, you know, uh, BRICS is doing some things, but there's uh, – some internal frictions uh, with BRICS too, but uh, they're coming forward as a real counterweight to um, the way things have been, and that's what is, is scaring folks. Uh, when it's scaring folks, I mean, scaring folks in in the uh, capitals of DC and London and Paris and, and Brussels and places like that. Because mm-hmm. it all gets down to the money. Yes. So it's the dollar, the franc, the euro is the money.
1: Let's go to Phoenix. Phoenix. Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix.
5: Yes, yes, Brother Elliot and Brother Richard, and good evening to your guest, Brother Lynn.
1: Yes, sir. Dr. Lynn.
10: You know, Doctor, I want to ask you a question because we see the rapid current of world events taking place. What would happen in this scenario? What do you think? Look into your crystal ball and see... If this guy, Trump, that, you know, every time they throw a fire on this guy, this guy gets more popular. What happens in a scenario if he actually wins an election and they try to imprison him? What do you think the ramifications will be given the current climate of the country? And I'll mute my phone and listen.
1: Thanks for your contribution, sir. Uh,
10: Incredible question. And to be honest, if I had that answer, I would hold off on that because I would have some foreknowledge. I would win the big lotto (laughs) and buy my own island. I I really don't know. I mean, it's, it's a scary proposition that this guy is still marauding. And we talk about Trump, 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 and rightfully so that, you know, he's this and he's that and whatever. But the reality is Trump is where he is right now in large part because of an abdication of responsibility on the part of the Republican Party. Let's remember that Trump was impeached twice, and both times the Republicans in the Senate refused to uphold the impeachment that came out of the House of Representatives. The first time was about his quote-unquote perfect call to the president of Ukraine, where he was trying to pressure the guy in Ukraine to get dirt on Joe Biden in exchange for the U.S. providing him with more weapons. And that, in some ways, uh, laid the groundwork for what we see that's going on over there now. Aside from the fact that um, NATO and the U.S. lied to Russia because they said, when you get rid of uh, the Soviet Union, this was back in the 1990s, uh, we will not advance NATO up to your borders. And as soon as they told Russia that, they started going up to the border. Uh, Poland, right on the border of Russia. Uh, Ukraine, right on the border of Russia. Um, so uh, I don't know what's going to happen with Trump. And then the second time around, he was uh, in, uh, impeached for what happened on January 6th. And they said, no. It would be improper to impeach him through a political process. What we really need is for the criminal justice system to take a look at this. Well, it took a little while, but the criminal justice system took a look at it, and that's why we have these indictments. And what are they doing? They're having investigations. Uh, Georgia passed a law that allows the state legislature to get rid of County prosecutors. So they're going after Fannie Willis. You know, they want to find some way to shut down, um, the, the Jack Smith investigation. So the Republican party is really, um, a culprit in why we have Trump rotting right now. And also other people are just not standing up to him. Not only Republicans, but Democrats. All the foolish stuff that he's doing, and crazy stuff that he's doing, the Democrats should be yelling and hollering every day. There's enough Democrats in the, just the leadership of Congress that somebody different should be coming out to you know, each day with a new piece of uh, information and a bomb to go after uh, Trump and his confederates. Um, but. Everybody's just waiting around, and we'll see what happens, and we hope this happens and that happens. No, you got to take some action, and not enough action is being taken.
1: Let's go to 215. Uh, two,
5: two, good evening, Brother Elliot. Good yeah. evening, Brother Richard, and good evening, Brother Len. How you doing, my brother? Okay, everything's well. Uh, praise be to our lives. You know, Brother let me I talk about my subject matter my, or my question and comments to you, I want to take a little – this is, this is an aside, brother, Now I want to take a little jab at your question. You're just talking about the America's mayor. <laughs> it's almost laughable now when you think about it. We were talking about America's mayor, Rudy Gianni. You made a comment to Elliot and Richard where you said, uh, do it sound familiar when you said he wanted to change the the, the, the the thing up in New York so he could stay as mayor and he, he could run again. And, and you said, do it sound familiar. I'm going to take a wild guess. Were you talking about his fellow racist Italian mayor, Frank Rizzo?
10: Uh, No, I was actually talking, right. about, Trump.
5: Uh, oh, talking about Trump. You're oh, okay. right.
10: Yeah, right. Because you know, Trump ran an insurrection in a coup to stay right. in office. But you're right. There was a guy named Frank Rizzo who, <laughs> in what was it, '76, tried to uh, change the city charter. It was a charter exactly, team. exactly.
5: Yeah, and That's he
10: came right. out with this this grand statement of voting white. Exactly. And it was That's in right. uh, what was it '78 that they. Um, denied him exactly um, yeah 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 so there there's there's a history <laughs> of <laughs> these characters uh trying to retain power um yes. in variance to the quote unquote democratic norms you know exactly I, I it, it, it just burns me up when i hear people say well we're a rules based society
5: and we believe in the rule of law for, uh, some uh-huh. yeah, for, for some people. Yeah, for some people. people. Right. <laughs> exactly. You're right, sir. You're right. Well <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but, but you know, when you talk about balance in the media, you always talk talking about the media and stuff. You know, one of the things that as a sixty two year old black I man that always sticks to my craw is how the media reports things. Like for example and in, 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 in the in when I see when I was see but a few black journalists that got integrity like yourself and others, whether they're black or white that speaks to this contradiction and this hypocrisy, when you look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and, and as a Muslim and a student of the honorable Elijah Muhammad, I care about all life, man. You know, I'm a humanitarian. I don't see any innocent people die. But what always goes be and stuff to no end, when when, when, when these uprisings happen in Palestine because there's legal Zionist occupation, on any given day, you've seen this over the years, it could be two or three Jewish people get killed in Israel, and 50 Palestinians get killed, and they'll make such a big deal about those Three Israelis that got killed, and act like the 50 Palestinians is dead. or they just a throwaway line. You know what I mean? I'm like, saying, dude, where, mm-hmm. where, 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 where's your balance there? You talk, you talking about three? Because they, they don't have the weapons to fight on. If they have the weapons, you'll see a different outcome. But they fight with what they do the best they can with what they have and stuff. So my point, Brother Lynn, is that you'll see, like I said, you'll see the three Palestinians—I mean, the 3 Jews get killed, and 50 Palestinians including men, women, and children. The media just gloss over that like it's no big deal. And then they never talk about the war crimes that happen. And you know, Lynn, you've been a journalist. They never talk about and condemn Israel for killing, for targeting journalists. Over the years, they've killed Palestinian journalists like the sister that got killed the other year. She was definitely... Targeted because you know not even wear a, 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 a vest or something that showed that they're journalists. Here's your targeted this, this girl and killed her and got away with it. Mm-hmm. You know? And do no, get away with it. Mm-hmm. And don't forget the incident what happened with a white girl from the United States that, that was against going on She went over there pro. She came from like a wealthy family. She went over there and was protesting. And an Israeli soldier ran over a bulldozer, and the girl we can see bulldozer? clearly, yeah. and again got away with it. And again, no condemnation from the, from, from the media. And That's why I say, Lamb, this, this media has no integrity, man. They they they, they sit there and it's, it's so biased and one-sided and stuff, man. You know, it's just, it's just that's why I thank our live brother, Lamb, for people like yourself that should try to be bring a fair and balanced account to what's going on in Israeli Palestine, what's going on with Ukraine and Russia. Like I like said, you're the first journalist, and I'm going to say this clearly, Brother Lem, you're the first journalist, black or white, that I've heard say what you just said to Brother Ellen Richard, about how nobody talks about how United States lied to Russia when they when they when they got rid of the Soviet Union. How they said how they promised they weren't going to intrude on their borders, and they've been doing it ever since then. But nobody talks about that. You're the first one that mm-hmm. I know that brought this up, man, And that's one to thank you for that, man, because people need to know. Because I say when people know better, they do better. So many of our people in this and I close with this, Len, so somebody else could get on. So many of our people in this country have such an ignorant. A, a misguided concepts about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the Ukraine-Russia thing—they don't even know because, like I say, like like Brother Reggie Bryant always says, "Not what you know that get you in trouble; it's what you know that just ain't so." And that's what, yeah, history, what it comes so. down to, you know what I mean? Thanks, yeah, Brother, that yeah. and Brother Ellie, okay. out, I, I, I'll finish and you put on Ellie and I'll listen to the rest of the show.
1: Thanks for your contribution. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Yeah,
10: yeah I, I, let me say and, and perhaps expand on it. When I say that the media is supposed to be accurate, balanced, and fair, that's what the theory is mm-hmm. that is not what the practice is and and you know the caller just rightly noted that we see an absence of that when we look at the situation that's going on in um, the occupied territories um, and in and in the country of Israel um, a little background um the there was a, a movement that came out of like the um, I'm probably going to mess this up a little bit but came out of the 1800s uh, the Zionist movement and because of the um, brutal and ugly treatment that people of the Jewish faith had been enduring in Europe um, they wanted to have a land where they could go and live in peace. They approached the British government to try to get some land in Africa, uh, Egypt, um, in Uganda. They even approached the apartheid government in South Africa. They said, Look, could we get a little something, something down there? And we you know, we're not, we just want our own little piece of something. Um, you can still do what you want to do with, with the Kefirs. And that's what they call black people over there at the time. There was a agreement. Uh, that the British government came out with, I think it was in the 1920s, it was called the Balfour Accords. And that put the British government firmly behind the establishment of an Israel. And they were talking about establishing Israel in what was called the, the Palestine Mandate or whatever. It was called Palestine. And the British were occupying it, you know, the, the colonizers there. But in that agreement, it said that the people who live there, their rights would be respected and recognized, and that hasn't happened. The person who um, pretty much spearheaded the approval of the Bolfar Accords um, was the then Prime Minister of South Africa. And the Bolvar Accords was approved shortly, well, let's see, if it was 1922, and and don't hold me to that. I do know in 1913, the apartheid government of South Africa passed a, a land act that from henceforth, no black person in South Africa could own land. They just stripped the land rights away from, from all the people uh, in, in, in South Africa. Jan Smuts, Jan Smuts, that's the guy's name, Jan Smuts. And it's kind of interesting. When you go to London, uh, there's the Parliament Building, and right across from the Parliament Building is Westminster Abbey. And over the main door of Westminster Abbey are a uh, 10 religious martyrs of the 20th century, and the religious martyr who's right at the center, right over the door where where the, where the queen and the king and the princes and all of them go in and have their marriage ceremonies and stuff, is Martin Luther King. But across from both um, Westminster Abbey and the Parliament is a is a square, Parliament Square, and there's um, statues of famous people there. You know, famous, uh, you know, Winston Churchill and other famous um, British leaders. But there's three statues, and the only three statues that are not of British leaders. One is Mahatma Gandhi from India, one is Nelson Mandela of South Africa, and the other is Jan Smuts from South Africa. So um yeah, we don't get uh Fair and balanced reporting um, on the um, disputes and the the mistreatment of, of, of the Palestinians. Um, so yeah, the media is not
4: the media is falling down on that. So and, and they're riding over there now against uh, what's his name uh, yeah, Netanyahu. I mean, Benjamin, Benjamin Netanyahu <laughs> yeah and, and oh then, it's the whole you know and there's no you know no big. Reporting of what that's about.
10: Um. Well, well, there has been some reporting, but, of course, uh, 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 some part of it is either not included or left out. The people have been um, protesting for uh, almost like all year, all of 2023. Netanyahu is is, uh, facing um, criminal charges for corruption. I mean, he could end up going to jail. And um, the elections over there have been so razor thin, so he had to cobble together a coalition that included some really, like, far right-wing um, uh, Israelis. These are people who want to um, ethnically cleanse Israel in the West Bank, um, get rid of all of the Palestinians. Um, some of them are even to the point of claiming that there's no people they're, they're really not Palestinians. They're, they're Jordanians, or they're just not people at all, no. um, although they are people. Um, and so what they're trying to do, in fact, what they have voted in, um, is that uh, it gave control of the court system to the legislature. So the legislature can nullify anything that the courts have done. And the courts, according to this you know, reportage and this outrage, is the courts have been a, a balance um, to make sure that the law is implemented fairly, but it means that it's implemented fairly for Israelis and not for Palestinians. Mm-hmm. The Israeli Supreme court hasn't been kind to of Palestinians. They've been sanctioning the theft of the land, the theft of the water, um, the demolition of houses um the carte blanche that uh, the Israeli ministry gets uh, military gets when things happen like um, that uh, Palestinian journalist who was killed last year uh, who's actually has an American passport I mean so this is an American citizen who was um, shot and killed uh, by Israeli sniper, and you know as the caller noted, this woman was wearing a a vest that clearly had press on it. And when you're looking through a um a, a telescopic sight on a, on a on a sniper rifle, you can see clearly who you're shooting at.
0: Mm.
10: It's not like, you know, over oh, are out like, you know, 150 yards or, or 300 yards and it's kind of blurry. I don't know. No, they know exactly who who it was and, you know, she was she was shot and killed and i i really haven't followed that followed up on that so i don't know there was supposedly an investigation uh but i haven't heard of anybody get perp walked <laughs> in the court uh for the um intentional slaying of that journalist
1: you know before i go to this last caller uh you mentioned about the uh uh netanyahu uh, being up on criminal charges or, or charged with some crimes, um, you know, he's he's tantamount to the Donald Trump of Israel. But, Absolutely. But the, yeah. the puzzling thing about, in fact, uh, a member of his cabinet or one of the people in, involved with him is that uh, that uh, lead rabbi that called black people monkeys about three or four years ago and doubled down on it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: but mm-hmm. The, But the thing mm-hmm. is puzzling that black media don't seem to discuss is why is it you, Hakeem Jeffries went to Israel to meet with Netanyahu and others about two months ago and then went back about um, uh, three weeks ago and took about 24 other uh, Congress people with him. Adams just went over there uh, uh, last week and met with Netanyahu. Yeah, the
10: mayor in New York City. Right? Yes.
1: Well, uh, what is good? What? <clears throat> What is our black media doing? And I'm not saying this to you, Lynn. I'm just saying this, uh, you know, as a whole. What are you meeting with him for? What you, represent, uh, you represent New York City, but in, in Jeffrey's case, he represents a district in, um, in, in New York that's overwhelmingly black. So right. what is the right. what do you what answers do you give to, to your constituents that you're running back and forth to Israel?
10: Well, no no um, answers.
1: You you it, hear, it, if you it, was to ask them you'd hear crickets. Yeah, his
10: his constituents should be raising those questions and holding him accountable for it. Uh, one of the last international acts of the Trump administration was the implementation of what they called the uh, Abram Accords. And this was uh, an effort to really stick a knife in the back of the Palestinians and, um, you know, just pretty much foreclose any of the two-state solution, which had already been closed off. But anyway, one element of that was that um, they got um, a number of Arab countries to have better relations with Israel. One of those countries was Morocco, the country on the north, I guess it would be like the northeast or north, depending on which way you going but right on the corner, the northern corner of Africa, uh, on the opposite end of the the top of Africa from, from Egypt. Morocco has been illegally occupying a country immediately south of that called the Western Sahara. They've gone to the United Nations. United Nations said, you know, hold a, uh, uh, an election, uh, determine whether this, uh Suari people, that's the people who are from the Western Sahara, um, if they want to be a part of Morocco, if they want to be independent, or if they want to have some sort of autonomy, whatever. Morocco's been running the muck down there. I mean, there's been U.S. State Department reports about the brutality and all this kind of stuff there. Historically... The Jewish people who have lived in Morocco have not had the problems that you know they face in Europe or even in some of the other Arab countries in fact, historically um the um, what would it be the monarchy of Morocco has had advisors from the Jewish community there, and when Israel was created, not a whole bunch of Jews from Morocco went to Israel I mean' cause, you know They didn't need to flee anything. But what this agreement did was to recognize the Morocco's illegal annexation of the Western Sahara. Now, the people who live in the Western Sahara look more like us, African Americans, than any people on the African continent. We know nothing about that. Mm-hmm. And this Congressional Black Caucus has been having these junkets where they go over and the King of Morocco puts them up in these fabulous palaces that he has all over the place, the Casablanca and the and in Marrakesh. And they've been supportive of this uh, mistreatment of the Sarawari people. So we need to raise some real questions about the Congressional Black Caucus. But we are just waiting for the next Congressional Black Caucus weekend. Oh, wow. I'm going to go down to D.C. and party and hang out and rub
4: shoulders. Don't start. the Congress. Hey, hey, Lynn, don't start Elliot on that. <laughs> okay. OK, all right, I'll, 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 I'll back up, I'll back up. Let me, let me, let's go to, to, to
1: 646, 646. Yes,
15: good evening to um, your guests and to you, Richard and Elliot. Listen, sir, I've been listening to you since you've been on. And I, you know, must say, my only critique of you is that you did not name the most dangerous man in the United States to the interests of black people, which is not Donald Trump. It is Edward Bloom, who you spoke of. That man right there is doing more to destroy the so-called progress of black people since the civil rights movement with the help of those who are the real puppet masters who control the puppet Trump. And the sadness is nobody is speaking out or calling this man out. He's the most dangerous white man in this country. And the sad thing is that most black people have no damn clue who the bastard is. And he's a Jew. I'm going to say it straight up. He's a Jew. And anybody who has any discussions in this country about Jews and blacks being so-called allies and the Jew don't stand up and say nothing about that devil and then want to attack people like Kyrie Irving and others and call them anti-Semitic when they bring up something, they're nothing more than pure evil. Edward Bloom is the most wickedest, evilest Jew in this country and white man against the interests of black people, because what he's doing is taking black people back sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety 70, 80, years. And no black person is out here doing the necessary work to call that bastard out, call his name, sir. When you talk and you make that type of analysis that you made, In regards to what's going on, call the bastard's name out. Say Edward Bloom.
10: Okay, I'll do a little more research on um, Mr. Bloom.
15: Sir, sir, let me say this to you. Edward Bloom is the person who is behind everything that you spoke about in regards to these lawsuits. He's the person that's behind it. And based on what your 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 analysis was and what you were saying, I'm absolutely shocked you don't know who the bastard is. Because he's the head of the organization. He's the person that was behind the lawsuit that you spoke of in regards to the white girl in Texas. He's involved in every other <laughs> lawsuit that's moving forward. In regards to diversity, affirmative action, and everything, it's all under the aspects of Edward Bloom. Hmm. So the name of the organization with his case we right now that you know of because you you basically spoke about it. That's Edward Bloom. Okay. Now, if you really want to do some serious research and know who the real puppet master is and who the real culprit of what's going on in regards to these lawsuits heading into the Supreme Court through this affirmative action, diversity, and all of that stuff. He's the one behind the situation with Keisha Knight Pulliam and what's, what's going on in Atlanta. The name is Edward Bloom. That's evil. He's a Jew, and that's evil. And I'm surprised because you said the guy was out of Texas, Edward Bloom. That's him. Okay. So I just gave you the name and do the research on it. And when you do the research on it, you'll probably come up much more than what I know about him. But he is pure evil, far worse, far worse than Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a puppet. Donald Trump is a puppet. The thing that most black people don't understand, if Donald Trump gets back in the office, it's not him who's going to do the evil. It's going to be the Senate. It's going to be the Congress. And it's going to be the lobbyists. And it's going to be the people who he appoints to offices that's going to then go about the business of changing the whole direction in regards to where this country goes. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't give a damn. Because mine ain't here. They're not going to suffer this madness. But I do have to have concern for my people. And that is what the real deal is. But yeah, what I'm saying to you, check out this name, Edward Blum. And when you check him out, you'll be able to cover all the dots. And I hope you write some stuff about them. Every journalist, black friend that you have, everybody that's supposed to be an ally, you need to speak with them, and you need to do something else. Put pressure on them to talk about this guy. You need to, if you have any sort of say and influence to the black caucus, to any other organization, you need to say, we need to put pressure on this man. He need to be broken. He need to be destroyed. He need to be eliminated. Because if he's able to do and continue to do what he's doing and get these cases in front of the Supreme Court, you see what happened to affirmative action. You see what happened to the right to choose and all that other nonsense. You know what I mean? Now it's time where you're going to see, because after you get finished with the case that he got working on now he's gonna go after the homosexuals the monkey man the twisted sisters i want to see what they go do you think they go stand by like we standing by and then letting this guy get away with what he getting away with and he's gonna basically take away all of the so-called rights that they gain nah but But sir Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard and Elliot. But that's the guy. That's his name. Richard Bloom. Edward, excuse me. Edward Bloom out of Texas. Every case that you spoke about that's moving forward towards the Supreme Court, he's the man that's running it. He's the man that's putting it forward. He's the man that's paying for it. He's the man that's initiating it. Edward Bloom.
1: Thanks for your contribution.
15: Okay.
1: Brother Lynn, thanks for being with yes. us. I know we kept you over time, but uh, it was a lively discussion, and I'm looking forward to uh, you being on again. You know, I had a number for okay. you, but the number I was dialing in my I don't think it was in at in, uh, uh, anymore. But I'm, I'm glad I was able to reach out to you and, and finally get you and have you back on the program. Cool, cool. Yeah. So we'll, we'll get back because you
10: wanted to talk about affirmative action. I mean, not affirmative action, but reparations. Yeah. And uh, that's a, a good topic. But you know, I got I got a, a roll, so uh, you know, I'd love to love to talk about that, yes. and uh, you know, so, give uh, listen, pay get... respects to uh, the godfather of uh, the modern reparations movement, Mario Badelli. Yes. Who is a uh, Philadelphian?
1: Yes. Listen, we'll get you back on because the young people involved, uh, Sister Brianna and Brother Rashawn, they, they're they actively involved here. And there's some things going Go on in. that they have pushed through the the, uh, the city council. So we'll, we'll get you back on and talk about it. Okay. Good enough. Good yeah. enough. Reach out to you <laughs> okay, soon. Okay,
10: gentlemen. Thank you so much, man. I really appreciate, uh, you know, you having me on and. Having a little dialogue and uh, sharing some things. So, you know, I've learned a lot from from you guys and uh, from your callers. So, this, this has been good.
1: Talk to you soon. Peace. Take care. Good. Okay. Take care, brothers. All right. Peace. We'll be right back to wind things down.
11: Mississippi Black Liberation Movement, Elmer Geronimo Pratt Gun
1: Club, presents the 7th Annual Black Liberation Movement Building Power Summit 2023.
11: Building Power Summit, Free the Land, Undivide, and Reclaim, September 15th to the 17th. Jackson, Mississippi at the historic Black Tougaloo College. Portions of the conference to be aired on time for an awakening media, Black Talk Radio Network calling all serious black power organizations, revolutionaries, organizers to attend this divine experience. For more information, contact Brother Patrick Lumumba,
1: 662-560-5434, Sister Crystal Denise, 405-361-4751, and Brother Nick Bezel, 512-364-0050. That's the 7th Annual Black Liberation Movement Building Power Summit 2023.
6: RG Electrical Inspections provides electrical inspections for realtors, licensed electricians, and homeowners. Licensed and insured underwriter serving Philadelphia and surrounding area. Call today 484-268-9837.
12: Escape the digital plantation. abibitumi.com, abibitumi.tv, abibitumi.tv.com, abibitumi.store are here for you. You are ready to be free. To join your global commit to you black family. To join your interconnected commit to you black communities. Escape the digital plantation now. IBB2Me.com. IBB2Me.tv. 2 metvcom 2 mestore We are here for you. Escape the digital plantation.
14: that this problem needs to be solved and we can't keep relegating it to generation after generation because a few of us got a little money, a few of us got positions, a few of us have wealth while the masses of our people are going steadily down. No one man can rise above the condition of his people. The brother said responsibility is it is it that we should let them take responsibility to do for us or should we pool the knowledge that's at the table the power that's in our community the wealth that's in our community to change the harsh reality of black life in America we have to do the job of fulfilling the black agenda thank you
9: have a message to the black man, because the black man today is a man who has been made now almost into a laughing stock. Nobody takes the black man serious, we're just used to be somebody's tool. We are the sportsmen, we're the singers and the dancers, and we're also labeled as the pimps and the criminals and the drug dealers, and the killers, and the vagabonds of society. We're the bogeymen of British society and other Western systems. And we want to dispel that lie and destroy those myths and put the black man back on the map where we belong. Who is the black man? The black man is the original man. If it wasn't for the black man, no other men could be on this planet. We are the fathers of humanity. We gave birth to all of you.
13: We are the watchmen on the wall. You are too. You watch with a political eye. We watch from a spiritual eye, but we're supposed to be the watchmen for the people that vote for us. The sad thing is the people vote but they don't give you the money to run your campaigns. So here come big business How are you? How are you, Judge?
0: How are you, (laughs) Alderman?
13: How are you, Congressman? How are you? How are you, Reverend? (laughs) What can I do for you today, Reverend? You can't do nothing for me. See, that's what we got to be careful of. We got to be careful of who we bow down to. You see, when you get in your congregation and you talk this Jesus, this powerful Jesus that's sitting at the right hand of the Father with all power in his hand, then you go with your hat in your hand to the governor, to the mayor, to the president begging for some crumbs. You have sold your God cheap. And you make the white man downtown disrespect all
11: of us yeah. time for an awakening is a proud part of the black talk radio network the number one independent black digital and podcasting platform.
1: Welcome back to Time for an Awakening is nine twenty five coming down the home stretch. Richard. Yes, yes. <laughs> interesting <laughs> interesting discussion with uh <laughs> with Lyn Washington tonight. It's uh it's always good to have it. You know, I well I wanted to kind of get it to the other portion, but we'll, we'll get it more because I know he wants to spend some time and talk about that.
4: Right. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, a couple of other things that, you know, and, um, as we were having the discussion points that came up, um, uh, like to explore like these, you know, the young people that are taking journalism, how, how are they viewing this moment? You know? Um, and you know, I, I'm going to reach out to him because
1: he said the, um, uh, he said there's a young woman up there in North Philly that's giving
4: classes on investigative right. journalism. Right, right, see? right. I, um, Yvette, what's that, Yvette, Yvonne Laddie? Do you know her? No. Uh,
1: Maybe I'll reach out person. to him and try to find out, you know, get some information. Maybe she can come on and kind of talk about it. Because mm-hmm. I remember the brother up there, uh, he was on our program before a couple of times, but this was when we was on Terrestrial Radio. Up there in New York, they got the Black Star News, Milton Alamadi. He was, oh, okay. he was doing classes on uh, investigative journalism and he was willing to come down here and kind of, uh, you know, help people along the way. Um, but you know, it would, we ran into some roadblocks here with some yeah. folks that I was trying to work with and that kind of fell through. Uh, we'll, will talk about that, but, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting to have her on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, because we do need just like he says the, the face of investigative journalism is these white folks and especially young white ones but uh he said that the the, the, the people out there they just don't get the opportunity to do it
4: and, and you know um with the and I don't know it's called its money but we're in the digital platform and, and with podcasts podcasting and other forms you know these other um digital uh, platforms um, we need community inve- investigative yes. reporters. We need, you know, especially in our communities, people who can make these connections and then provide the information, which will help do the political political education about why it's important and who is, uh, as, uh, you know, Brother Steve Coakley said, um, naming the names. Cause that's what really helps is when you know how all these things interact with each other, but it might be just one person, um, who's doing it. But if nobody's doing that kind of reported investigation, you don't know. You just see these incidents and they report it, you know, compared to the why and the who of it. Okay. Uh, Richard coming up within the
1: next, uh, maybe week or two, uh, Reach back out to Tom Burrell because uh, I spoke with him last week, uh, mm. the president of the Black Farmers and Agricultural Association over there in, in uh, Tennessee.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, when he was on with us last, he was talking about the meeting that he planned to have with some of the black landowners and farmers that's around uh, Mason, Tennessee, and that Blue Oval to kind of organize them to take advantage of what was getting ready to go on. Uh, and I know you remember that conversation, Richard. Right,
4: right, right.
1: And, uh, when I touched base with him, I was just seeing whether, you know, he had the meeting and how successful it was. But he told me that they've had two meetings since then and was planning a third one for this weekend coming up. And he said it went tremendous to three meetings that it. So, mm-hmm. uh, it's good that they're organizing the men around that because a lot of the men was, uh, you know, didn't want to sell their land. Uh, they were going to try to hold strong, but he was trying to persuade them to take advantage of what was going on because the state is not going to give that project up. Right. It's the largest investment that Tennessee ever had, and it'll be two times bigger than they, when you, you know when he gave us the example here, that Ford plant being um, the Ford plant in Detroit being 2,000 acres. But the one that they got planned for there is 4,000, so it's double the size of Detroit. And, uh, yeah. So that that could mean uh, major um, things for those towns around Mason. Because if you remember, Richard, when we had uh, Vice Mayor Rivers on and the, the other brother that came on with <clears throat> Vice Mayor Rivers in the beginning, a businessman right. in that area, and I forgot his name, and I'm sorry, I, did, I didn't remember the brother's name. But he talked about all those towns all around Mason. All those, t- those towns around him was black. Right. Yeah, there so um, if they if they take advantage of this and and they can see it, the thing is not if they can take advantage, they can if they organize because the the key difference is is a lot of those men around there they own the land that the state needs. Mm-hmm. So they have to talk with them one way or the other. Yeah, okay. so uh, it, it'll be interesting to have him on to kind of see you know, how this is moving and then just to report back to the uh the listeners of uh Time Plan Awakening. Um and, and coming moving forward to the uh, uh the uh Black Power, the Building Power Summit, Richard, this is what what about three weeks out? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. this is uh, you know, Mississippi. <laughs> coming coming down the home stretch. So it'll be interesting to uh to kind of see things. I, I talked with Brother Patrick last week. Uh, but he was involved with, uh, in fact, he was telling me that he was involved with the the mother and the, I think the, uh, aunt of the, the, uh, little boy that was arrested. Uh, you know, for, for it, uh, when his mother was in the office, he urinated, he opened the car door and was in between the cars. So you couldn't see him, but they, they arrested him for at 10 years old for, for uh, urinating him with urinating in public and all kind of, you know, stuff. So he was, he was involved with the, uh, family down there. So, uh, get him back on the kind of billboard things leading up to the, uh, the summit. Um, he'll probably be doing either on this show or on the, or the Thursday program. I know he's been busy, his hands full down there, but, uh, that's what, uh, that's what we're headed for. Uh, before we leave tonight, just, uh, deal with the programs. Oh, I also talked with brother West too. in the new Orleans black United front. And they want to plan to do something and um, uh, they're targeting the first of October, Richard, mm. because they already do a program down there, but it's a cable television program. Uh, but they want to do the broadcast also, which would be good to have a, um, uh, a voice, uh, coming from, uh, Louisiana. Oh, that'd be great. Yeah. So, um, I've been in conversation with them, and and, and hopefully we can uh, kind of get the, some things nailed down as far as the time and the days. Before we leave tonight, uh, calendar for, on time for an awakening media. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. That's African Perspectives. With host Brother Oshie, always interesting topics and dialogue on African Perspectives. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Later on in the week, from 7 to 8 Mississippi on the move, the Black Liberation Movement in Mississippi. Brother Patrick Lumumba as the host on Friday. Time for Awakening is back from 8 until on Saturday from 7 to 9. The Elders of Sankofa, Dr. Janine James, as host. And Time for an Awakening is back from on Sunday from 7 until. I want to thank everybody for listening to the program this evening. Lively discussion as always. And we'll be back on Friday, Lord willing, to continue on this path towards an awakening. Peace.
11: Peace.
0: If you're driving through the country on a lazy afternoon Or you watching your children play after school